Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. What's wrong, fellow Imperial Stormtrooper? You've been mopey all week. I'm tired of being a Stormtrooper. How can you be tired of that? We've got everything. We've got blind obedience to the command hierarchy and total loyalty to Emperor Palpatine. And this cool-looking white armor. I'm going to stop you right there. This armor is really terrible. Anytime anybody shoots us, we die. Anytime anybody hits us in the head, we get knocked out, even though we're wearing helmets. I would say our armor is purely decorative, but it looks like crap. Children call us Bucketheads. Hey, Buckethead, that really hurts. Yeah, but we're, we're large and in charge. We're, we're winning. We have so much winning. We have, to quote Emperor Palpatine, the best greatness and the top winning stuff thingness. He's a buffoon. Hey, now. And would it kill them to let us practice shooting sometimes? We never hit anybody. Like, we literally never hit anybody. Like in the battle down in Scarif, the blind guy in the bathrobe was more accurate than our best guy. I'm not even going to use the term best marksman because that would be a joke. you got to learn to look at the bright side. We're, we're not even supposed to do that. We're the dark side, remember? I mean the good times. How about on Hoff? Remember... General Maximilian Veers was placed in command of the ground assault and led the contingent of AT-ATs and ATSTs under the unilateral command of the Blizzard Force. Veers, wary that rebel starfighters would swarm the Executor's Incom Y-85 Titan dropships, called upon Death Squadron's more versatile Gazanti-class cruisers, which could carry only two AT-ATs at a time, unlike the Titan's four. Blizzard Force barges and troop carriers escorted by TIEs converged at the Morsh Marion glacial feature well north of the heavily fortified mountain base. Huh? Huh? Was that fun or what? I don't remember it being fun. Well, it was. Look, we suck. I'm tired of sucking. I think somebody needs a hug. Okay, that that didn't go so well. Maybe without our armor on? Meanwhile, it's the nose, stowing away on Rogue One. And now his Rebel Alliance call sign is Bantha Cheese, Colin McEnroe. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Too, too much laughter here. Too much laughter. It was very serious stuff ahead of us here today. Very serious <coughs> uh, yes. as we get ready for Rogue One. So <clears throat> uh, before I even introduce the panelists, I have to say I'm amazed that things are going so well so far because this show was in trouble earlier today. Wolfie had <laughs> like a temporary cap from her tooth split off or something. And, and I, I have to say one other thing about Rogue One, which is that everybody who's on the show today saw Rogue One, the new Star Wars anthology movie, like five or six days ago. And then they started emailing back and forth about it. And I was trying to see it with my friend Greg and we couldn't make that work until yesterday. So there are like 35 embargoed emails that I, I had to read all at once today. Um, and, uh, and also when we did see it yesterday, there was a woman in the movie theater with two toddlers in a stroller, in like a double stroller. And I thought, you must do that just so someone will offer you $20 to leave. You know, it was like maybe a way she makes money. Like, I'll give you $20 to take those babies out of here. Uh, all right, so uh, it's time to begin. Uh, Rebecca Castellani is a scholar of modern literature. John Dankosky is executive editor of the New England News Collaborative and host of The Wheelhouse and Next on WNBR. And Pedro Soto, this is the best uh, time ever to say his title. It's going to sound like we made it up. Pedro Soto is chief chief operating officer at Spacecraft Manufacturing in New Haven. They do make the guidance systems for the Rebel Alliance destroyers. Um, 
But uh, it's important to get that on the table. You have kind of a conflict of interest. Um, so we're going to talk about Rogue One, uh, which, and we are going to try our mightiest not to spoil significant things. I mean, if you're the kind of person who thinks, I don't want to know anything about this movie, then why are you even listening now? Why have you listened even this far? But uh, we're going to not try not to spoil really important things. We may tell you little things that will sort of be, would become evident to you anyway in the first 20 minutes or so of watching the movie. So one of the so the big existential question posed in one of those 35 emails by John Dankowski is, why did we make this movie again? Explain what you meant by that question. Well, look, we've got uh, the original three Star Wars movies, which were the Star Wars trilogy movies we all grew up with. And then we had the three horrifying movies that were made that were meant to come before that trilogy. And we all... <laughs> Uh, knew that that was uh, a tragic mistake. Uh, and now we have a new series of movies that are meant to come afterward. We've had one of those films, which I think most people here liked an awful lot more than we liked the first three movies. And it took us back in some ways to that original Star Wars feeling. This is an anthology movie, which means it's not part of that continuum. It's not part of the nine. It is supposed to be placed in time just before the first movie that we know which is movie number four. And I think the answer, obviously, is we, we made this movie because we wanted to make a boatload of money, <laughs> just the biggest pile of money possible. That said, as I think you'll probably hear, it's, it's a pretty cool movie for a movie that was just made to make a boatload of money. Right. I mean, I think the reality here is, Rebecca, we all liked this movie, although we also are able, at, at various, with various levels of enthusiasm, to pick it apart. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, you can really do that with any film. I thought this one, personally, my feeling with The Force Awakens is I felt it was a little heavy-handed on the nostalgia trip, where this felt like a completely unique movie. It was independent, it was fresh, and yet it enhanced the original Star Wars movies. Unlike the, the 1, 2, and 3, which I think really detracted from watching 4, mm -hmm. 5, and 6, it really ruins a lot. Rogue One, to me, I think really adds to the canon as opposed to taking away from it. All right, so now, Pedro, and we should say that if people's um, allotted time for speaking was based on how much they know about Star Wars, <laughs> John and Rebecca and I would be done now. You just would be listening <laughs> to Pedro until 2 p.m. Um, so there's so many things to say about this. But I think one thing, and you love Star Wars, yes. and I think you really like this movie. But I think you agree, as I think we all do, uh, that this movie is another movie involving the Death Star. Although, to be fair, this movie is more about whether the Death Star is going to be ready for the Dagobah Yard Goats uh, next <laughs> season. But it's still yeah. another... I mean, aren't, we are, like, tired of the Death Star, right? Yeah. I mean, I think this this was probably one of the Death Star... Sh part, part, uh, one of the movies where, like, the Death Star showing up, obviously, is a really good thing. But the fact that, like, we're now... What was my count? I think six six of the eight movies have had the Death Star show up at some point, um, and it's like you know I think we're we're kind of I think this was the swan song of the Death Star. I think this was a good way to sort of say goodbye. We're done with this plot device. You know I don't think we'll ever see it again. Um, I have no faith in that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> it's coming back next year. That's a, that, that's, that's a new hope. That is my, <laughs> that is my new hope. Uh, but I mean, in terms of uh, of this movie, I, this this was really, I think, the Death Star movie that that we really wanted to see, um, and I think this was really the the prequel that we wanted to see. I think taking those two paragraphs in Episode Four, um, you know, in the opening scroll and turning them into a movie, th this was that this was the movie that that it should have been. 
I want to talk a little bit about the cast of this movie, mm-hmm. which I think is really one of its strengths. You know, that it's, it really is. I mean, w- one criticism that I sometimes had of some of the earlier movies is that they were about this incredibly multi-species panoply of alien life, except that the human beings were mostly almost entirely white, except for Billy Dee Williams. Um, whereas this is kind of, um, I mean, John, this is a real global cast, and it includes people who are even more famous in their respective foreign medium or movie markets than they are here. And it and it lends itself to then being a better movie. You just have more yes. interesting characters. You have uh, people who are fun to watch on screen. You have interactions that you that you never had in the original movies when you had this sort of lily white cast. I, I, I think that we're going to say a lot of, uh, of nice things about uh, Riz Ahmed, uh, who appears in this movie, as he does in every other movie right. in 2016, <laughs> uh, as a matter of fact. And the best television show. And the best television show. And Netflix. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I will say that the thing that I put on the table was I really feel like his character is underutilized. Diego Luna's character is overutilized. And I just wish that they'd switch, switch places. Em. If you just switch those two guys, it becomes a, a, a much better movie, a much more watchable movie. I know you'd like to watch that movie, Rebecca, even more so. <laughs> yeah, I'd just, like to watch a movie with everyone played by Riz Ahmed. Yeah. So, so Riz Ahmed, who, to contextualize him, is the defendant in the HBO series The Night Of. He's a uh, counselor in the OT on uh, Netflix right now. He's like a software developer or something in uh, Jason Bourne, uh, and he plays in this one a uh, a pilot for the – I don't know. I'm going to get this wrong get in trouble with Pedro, but it's like for an Empire cargo ship or something, and he kind of right. turns. And, and But the, the, the male lead, I think, is Rebecca Diego Luna. Yes. Um, who's a tremendous actor. I don't know. I don't know. Why, does, why do you guys want to I thought he did a really good job. See, I, my personal problem with Diego Luna has nothing to do with his performance. It's that my sexual awakening was ushered in <laughs> do by... Do you want to hear this? Yes, you do. By Diego Luna in the very C-list yeah. movie Dirty Dancing Havana Nights. So I cannot <laughs> quite separate Diego Luna dancing the salsa in a sweaty Cuban club from uh, Captain Cassian Andor. Uh, so I do believe, and just in terms of chops, I think that if you'd switched Riz and uh, Diego Luna's roles, I think it would have been much stronger. I absolutely agree with John in that. I know sure. Pedro Diego plays, I mean, he's sort of the Han Solo character in a way. He's right. kind of the slightly less ethical, prepared to shoot first, mm-hmm. uh, if necessary, guy who, on the other hand, has some kind of moral core. I don't know. I, I, as much as I love Riz Ahmed, and I totally concede we are living in Riz Ahmed's world right now, <laughs> you know, on guest passes. But I actually thought, I actually kind of enjoyed him. He had a kind of darkness that I liked. I think that as as the movie goes on, I think it, it, it pays off. I think initially he seems almost a little too clean cut to be this um, murderous uh, sort of anti-hero. Um, but I think as the movie goes and as you kind of get to know him and learn, you know, that there's the, the heart of gold underneath is really there. I think it does. It does work. I, I mean, miss, I, I think it would have been very different with Riz Ahmed. It would have been a... I miss the Han Solo charm. I think that's what it is. You, mm-hmm. You're looking for that figure yeah. that's going to, you know, and it was the, it was the droid. It was K2SO that, that took on that sort of... That's but, true. But he was, yeah. Okay, we better talk about him. All right, so <laughs> the, this movie introduces, and we're going to let you hear, uh, a new robot. Uh, a, a snarky robot, as uh, John Dankowski says. His name is – and he's also just a lot more butch, really, than, you know, C-3PO. Uh, he's K2SO. Oh, let's hear – he's voiced by Alan Tudyk, uh, who, you know, yeah, we all have like a little And, Alan and played Tudyk. by a motion capture. Oh, motion capture? Yeah. He did it too? Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so let's hear a little uh, K2SO. Why does she get a blaster and I don't? What? I know how to use it. That's what I'm afraid of. Give it to me. 
you're in a Jeddah. That's a war zone. That's not the point of... Where'd you get it? I found it. I find that answer vague and unconvincing. Trust goes both ways. You're letting her keep it. Would you like to know the probability of her using it against you? It's high. Let's get going. It's very high. <laughs> That's like my favorite line reading in the whole movie. And John, you know, Pedro said that yeah. the, this is the Death Star movie that we really needed and wanted. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I do think that K2SO is the robot that we really needed and wanted. Oh, yes. totally. Yes. It's, it's the perfect robot for this film. I, I think my only quibble is that truly he is the only funny. It's very yes. funny, actually. That's but true. but to me, I, you, you talked about the Han Solo charm. I don't think that's about the actor. It's about the writing. Yes. There is one character here who's written funny. Yep. The, the droid... I, I will say, Pedro, is written very, very funny, yes. so much so that I think that uh, watching him and every single scene in which he's in, you, it kind of lights up the screen in the way the original Star Wars did because you always had that little interplay, and you don't really other than him. That's true. That's true. And, and I think that's the one thing on this versus uh, Episode Seven. Um, I think with the, the banter um, that was in Episode Seven just brings a lot of life to the characters and a, and a lot of it, it really makes you like uh, Finn and Ray and um, you know and, and Poe Dameron. I think all of them just have that that kind of sparkle. And in this movie, I think because it is fairly bleak, um, I think everyone's playing it pretty close to the vest and very very serious, except for Alan Tudyk, K2SO, who really gets to just run with this, but, and but, he runs with it. It's great. But but I, I have to ask you. I mean, it, like at, at spacecraft manufacturing, mm-hmm. if you built a droid, say, <laughs> and you programmed him to like help you run a mission. Would you really want one that, that freelanced <laughs> so the way sassy. he did? Yeah. It was so sassy <laughs> that it was constantly questioning all your decision making? That's true, I guess. As an assistant manager, he does not make a very good uh, good managerial droid. But I, but I, I guess he but he comes in, man, at the right moments, he's there. Exactly. I mean, what I like about him, I mean, look, the, the running joke about C-3PO is he talks too much. The problem with that is he talks too much. You know, 80%, 80% of the time he's completely annoying. And that point was driven home to me by this new robot yeah. who is a man of fewer words. You know, and more carefully selected words. He was not always saying, oh, R2-D2, I thought yeah. that was so rude. Don't you think yeah. that was rude? You know, <laughs> it's like, shut up. Um, but this gets to the issue of writing, Rebecca, which is mm. something that you, you emailed about. And one thing that I would like to say in terms of the humor stuff, you know, as Pedro's saying, there are gradations of humor within the Star Wars universe. But there are also boundaries of humor. Like, Star Wars is never going to be funny like Guardians of the Galaxy is funny, right? right? That, that's like real Marvel comics funny, funnier than most Marvel comics. And that there are sort of... Each, each one of these places, each one of these franchises has kind of a sweet spot for where the humor can be. But you, you were not nuts about the writing. No, I mean, I want to first, before I get into that, say that I do think that this movie didn't have as much room for humor. The, right. the stakes were very high. It was very bleak. And also the moment we're in currently, I, I think that they, that very much factored into a lot of their decisions to make a bleaker film than The Force Awakens. Um, that being said, there were definitely some lines where my eyeballs hit the ceiling. I really, and I mean particularly, Darth Vader at one point makes a pun that I just almost got out of my seat and had to 
get a cold glass of water because I was so rage-filled oh, by that. Oh, you, you just said Darth Vader. Darth Vader's in the movie. Yeah, it's amazing. Right. It is amazing that Darth Vader's in the movie, yeah. and, and people are other characters are in the movie, including, we can't tell you all I knew the this was going to be too hard for me. He's in the trailers. He's in the trailers. I'm off the hook. That's not a spoiler. I don't think that's a spoiler. I didn't say the pun either. No, you didn't say what the pun is. And Darth Vader, if you ever saw his Friars Club roast, he actually can be very funny. And then chokes the audience at the end. But but Pedro, here I'm about to commit an act of sacrilege, but I think it's also easy to forget how, at least by the account of the actors themselves, how badly written Star Wars A New Hope was. Yes. Oh, I, I mean, agree with that. I mean, it's, Harrison Ford yeah. famously said to Lucas, you can write this bleep, or you can type this bleep, but it's another thing to try to say it. Uh, Alec Guinness wrote to a friend, he was so disdainful of Lucas that he, first of all, he thought his name was Paul. He said, Paul <laughs> Lucas is writing, you know, rubbish dialogue for me that makes my character unbearable. You know, I mean, there was a lot of clunky dialogue in right. there, and maybe we've become accustomed to more sophisticated kinds of dialogue in a lot of different movie franchises mm-hmm. since then. No, I think that's true. I mean, I think that it really the it's really Empire Strikes Back, which I think lights the fire for for the good dialogue. I mean, that's you know a 1940s screwball commentary comedy where they're constantly arguing the entire movie, um, and that's really what what works. And I think what we all remember as Star Wars dialogue. But you're right. If you go to Episode Four and you watch most of the scenes, uh, there are a lot of clunkers in there, uh, and it's just the, how cool the story is. I think that that carries it a lot. Sitting here, I'm kind of changing my mind on it, though, because don't we kind of expect campy dialogue from Star Wars? Like that's what we've come to know from the movies, and certainly one, two, and three took that and ran with it. Well, John, that's part of the Easter egg part of it too, right? There's like yeah. all kinds of little bits of clunky stuff that you're supposed to recognize from some of the other. Movies. You're supposed it's to recognize, yeah. You're <laughs> supposed to recognize little characters, little tiny lines. Of course, there are some lines that you knew somebody would throw in at one point or another, yeah. and the whole audience giggles. I will say the thing that I came away with that I loved, and that's why this is kind of the best of, to me, the -hmm. best of all the other movies that were made after the original trilogy, was because it's set in a time and a place, it's meant to set up the world in which A a New Hope takes place. And so because of that, the fashions, the mm-hmm. the hairstyles, the mustaches. I think you have to talk about the mustaches. I, right? I just I, my my wife said the mustaches. That was a, her, her big takeaway was the mustaches <laughs> because you actually have actors styled more or less like they're from 1977 yeah. or the 1977 version of you know a long time ago galaxy right. far far away. And I think that that's really really cool. They did a pretty perfect job of recreating that world right down to a few details that I think you know we don't want to spoil for people, but the internet is kind of. Blown up over Pedro, <laughs> which w- w- well, the, I mean, just if you go inside some of the some of the dwellings, there's little uh, Easter oh, eggs yes, hidden on the yes. side. You know, the real Star Wars fans will come away if you see this twenty times. Right. You come up with a thousand new things. Right. That I seen. mean, there are plenty of Easter eggs in the movie, and it's I'm. I mean, me, the biggest Star Wars fan, for me, it was just like, right, just candy. It's like, oh, and here's that, and here's yeah. that. I mean, there's stuff from the prequels. There are ships from the prequels. There are ships from this. There's, there's from lines Rebels. I mean, from Rebels. The whole yep. there, there's, it's everything. Now, the thing that I'm a little conflicted of is that really, you know, Star Wars is probably one of the only movies that can actually do this and go to this well of this, you know, giant sort of movie universe and sort of play, put them in. In this particular movie, I think they did it. Ninety percent amazingly well, where they're not hitting you over the head with it. But I do worry in future Star Wars movies that you know mm-hmm. a, a bad Star Wars movie will just just keep kind of feeding these out, 
and people will like them on the nostalgic side, but you know they won't be very good movies. I, I've been told that the Easter eggs in the Interstellar uh, sequel are not that good. I mean, it's like, oh, that's the same book yeah. he knocked off the bookshelf in the first. Um, so yeah. we also we do have to talk a little bit about. I mean, so we're talking about Easter eggs and some of the. I mean, I think for Pedro, Easter eggs are one thing. For me. First, I missed all of those. <laughs> I blame the babies a little bit, but I missed all of those. You know, but I did see. I did really enjoy seeing the two guys from, I guess, episode four. Uh, the mm-hmm. guys who <laughs> go, he doesn't like you. I don't like you either. <laughs> They're like my favorite guys, and I used to say that to my son when he was growing up, when he was a little boy, which is why he has problems <laughs> as an adult. But, um, but there, I mean, Rebecca, the most disconcerting thing in terms of, I think you called them callbacks, is the biggest one, which is Peter Cushing, who, mm. an actor who is dead, who played Grand Moff Tarkin, is yeah. in this movie. And, like, he's really in this movie. Yeah. And, and so people have different sort of takes on that. What was yours? I knew this was happening, that he was appearing in the movie, and he's obviously been dead since the 90s. I mean, he's not alive. Since the 80s. Okay, well, even longer. No, he's 90, no, deep in the grave. I'm told really? Yeah. See, okay, see, I, I heard 84. Please continue, yes. No, I mean, so I, I was expecting it. Did I think for a second that it would have been as prominent and as heavy-handed as it was used? No. Mm-hmm. I mean, we talked in, we emailed before the show, and we were talking about how maybe if he'd been seen through a glass or in profile, it would have been so much more effective and cool. Or a hologram. I mean, there you go. Another Easter egg you could have thrown in. Mm -hmm. But to have his presence loom so large and have... His his face distracted me. It really... I stopped listening to what he was saying and kept thinking, how the heck did they do this? Is this a video game? You know, I'm not very technological, so I was sitting there kind of in awe of this and stopped really listening to the plot, and Mm -hmm. so it distracted for me in that respect. Yeah, I, I was surprised. I thought... I, I had a sense. I mean, you kind of glimpse in one of the trailers. I thought he might be in there, but he's actually one of the main characters. I mean, he's in there, yeah. and um, they do it, it. It works. I think it's one of these things that maybe if you watch the movie two or three times, you'll kind of settle into it, and and it it works. I mean, he's a great character in the movie, um, but it is the way he's done is a little bit jarring because a you know that he's no longer alive, and B, because you can tell that he's kind of digital. Well, it's sort of the, it's the height, though, of a lot of the problems we've had with every Star Wars iteration since the original trilogy. Mm-hmm. When Lucas went back and he souped up the original movies with all those extra CGI effects, right. which were not ready for prime time back mm-hmm. in however long ago that was, uh, everyone rolled their eyes and said he was just cluttering up the screen. The, the prequel movies are just cluttered with, with right. all sorts of drones and things that you can only Jar Jar Binks. Jo- yeah. And, of course, oh. with Jar Jar Binks. And it sort of was the height, I think, of that uneasy tension between things that we see real people doing or puppets doing yep. with people right. inside them and then things we can't really quite believe are there. Yeah. And that was the only dissonance I really felt in the whole film was just there's all this really great real stuff happening or real-looking stuff, and this is something that just didn't look real enough to... It didn't ruin the movie for me, right. but it wasn't the best thing. And maybe in ten years they'll be able to do that. I just it was nineteen ninety four. You're right. That right. he's been poor Peter Cushing has been dead for a long time. You know, one name that we haven't said here. We said like every other name. We haven't said the name Felicity Jones. Felicity Jones yeah. is nominally the lead character in this. It's interesting too because I think I like Felicity Jones and I think she's really attractive too. Although what I think is she looks like a really, really, really hot rabbit, the second hottest rabbit <laughs> after Jessica Rabbit. Um, but um, that's just me. That's I just wanted to put that weird thing in. But I I don't know. Like I don't think you didn't like her, right? I and I it's, thought she really did a good job. It's not that I didn't like her. It's just the fact that we've gone half an hour into this conversation and her name hasn't <laughs> come up to right. me speaks more than anything I can say about her. I just thought I was very underwhelmed by the performance and especially 
especially if you compare her performance to Daisy Ridley's performance, oh, yeah. which oh, from right. the second was just energetic. I thought Daisy Ridley was the best part, hands down, of The Force Awakens. And it was hard. I mean, especially because they, they look a little similar. Mm-hmm. They've got, the, you know, do. the doe-eyed brown hair thing. I think that she just couldn't keep up with the fantastic work that Daisy Ridley did and it showed. I mean, and she was surrounded by other actors I thought were more compelling. Her story, we've all been there. We've seen the origin mm-hmm. story. It, it just felt a little done, and her performance, to me, felt a little done. Well, and I think that her origin story is a little it's, – it's, it's a little problematic because you're only given – First of all, I mean, they, they, they literally set it up, and, and you'll see at the beginning of the movie, is it's kind of a flashback, and you go back in time, which, again, another you know thing with modern movies is this sense that you always have to show the childhood yeah. of the main character, mm-hmm. and that takes almost like 15 or 20 minutes of the movie, and um, you know that's the setup, right? That's her childhood, that scene, what she sees, uh, that drives her for the rest of the movie, and it's not that compelling, um, and I think that that it leaves her kind of a you know, a little bit of a, a cipher. There's not much going on there at the beginning. And, and we're meant to really invest ourselves in her. And you can see at one point in the movie, she does have the change and turns into the hero we need her to be. And, you know, it, it doesn't, it, it's not like a Daisy Ridley, exactly, like in episode seven, where she does have that payoff. She does, from being reluctant, uh, turns into uh, the heroine. And so I think that that's, that's definitely something in this movie that didn't quite work. Something something else in the movie, I will say, that didn't quite work, and I was fascinated by this, that I, I don't get out to the movies very often, but uh, I, I, I've seen two movies that are uh, science fiction fantasy movies, and they've both been released within the second half of the year, and I liked both movies very much, and somehow or other, Forrest Whitaker was the worst actor in both of them, <laughs> by a long so shot, bad. by like a really long shot, and I really like Forrest Whitaker in so many things, but in Arrival, he puts on a weird... Boston-y accent of some sort that's frightening to listen to. And then he puts on another type of strange space accent in, in, this, in this film, which I find really off-putting. And I, I really like Forrest Whitaker. I'm just not quite sure what he's doing. Dude couldn't breathe right. You know, well, I know. I guess that that's he's what it a breathing was. Problem. I kept wondering, do you have the same breathing problem that Darth Vader that's eventually got? That's what I kept thinking. I was like, <laughs> why don't you have cool equipment like him? Your budget cut. rebellion I think he has like, more yeah. of an inhaler with a yeah. hose. That's exactly right. <laughs> you know, um, so we have to, <laughs> we're going to have to break here. I will say one thing that I would have liked to have seen them develop a little bit more. So this is all very early in the movie. We're not wrecking anything. So Forrest Whitaker's character is supposed to be a rebel, but like too hardcore, mm-hmm. too destructive, too, too much of a zealot for the more mainstream rebel alliance. Like, I really want to know more about that. Like, what kinds of stuff did he do that was, you know, and that was, they just pick that up and they drop it in two seconds but, later. But, but then once we meet him, we don't really actually want to know anything more. It's like, okay, that was good. Hey, he's not that cool anyway. <laughs> we're done. All right. Forrest Whitaker can't take a, catch a break <laughs> Sorry, in 2016. Forrest. Speaking of 2016, we're going to take a break here. We all recommend that you go see Rogue One so we yes. can talk to you about it more without wrecking things. <laughs> and we're going to come back. We're going to talk about things that we liked in 2016. All right, we're back. So we talked about different thing, ways that we could uh, deal with this part of the show because we're not going to be doing a nose next week. We're not doing an, an end-of-the-year nose. Our end-of-the-year show is probably going to be on Thursday of next week when, as we do annually, Big Al Anderson and Jim Chapdelaine, and I think this time maybe a cast of other guest stars. Kind of, we're going to do the, kind of a holiday special, which we do every year. 
and we just sit around and play songs and talk and stuff. So that'll be how we wrap up the year. So we're going to wrap up the year culturally on this episode of The Nose. We're going to use two segments to do it. And yeah, I know everybody hated 2016 and everybody that we loved died and all that kind of stuff. I get that. And they elected the wrong president. I get that. But <laughs> I actually thought, you know, I mean, if you can get past that um, and into the kind of the Riz Ahmed part of 2016, there were some pretty good things that happened. So I asked all of the panelists to mention some of their favorite things. And we're going to go uh, one by one. We're going to do round robin, basically, is what we're going to do. We're going to start with Rebecca Castellani. We're going to start with, well, this is sort of like uh, best of 2016 for babies because you liked Hamilton, which was like the most popular thing of 2016. Yes, I know. I felt like I was going to be a little cliche, but I just saw it last month and I've always been a bit of a musical theater nerd. I've never really done much theater myself, but I've always had, you know, that that goosebump feeling. And from the second the curtains opened to the second it ended, I had that feeling throughout. I was not bored. I was not distracted. It was absolutely riveting. It did something that I've never seen theater really do. It was, it just was everything I wanted it to be and then some. And a lot of it resists articulation for me because it was just pure feeling. It really was emotive and powerful and the performances were spectacular. I was by no means seeing cl- anywhere close to the original cast. I believe only the actor playing George Washington was part of the original ensemble. Everyone across the board was stellar. It just was wonderful. And I, I do think it's, you know, it's one of those things It's really tough to get tickets. But the soundtrack, if you do really listen to it start to finish, does get you the same place. Because there is no spoken word. It is, it yeah. is song mm. from the beginning to the end. Just speaking of soundtrack, first of all, if you're in some kind of working in a hospital right now, could you wake up all the people who've been like in a coma for about a year? Okay. So uh, wake up, wake up, wake up. Okay. So the soundtrack to Hamilton, it's the whole story is, you know, couched in the uh, time of the American Revolution. But it's a lot of it is sort of rap and hip hop. And, and R&B. Uh, and so here's a little bit of Dear Theodosia. Dear Theodosia, what to say to you? You have my eyes, you have your mother's name. When you came into the world, you cried and it broke my heart. I'm dedicating every day to you Domestic life was never quite my style When you smile You knock me out, I fall apart And I thought I was so smart You will come of age with our young nation We'll bleed and fight for you We'll make it right for you all right, just listen to the sound. Sound actually really great. I still haven't seen the play. The mixtape's not bad either. Yeah, the mixtape. Yeah, the mixtape, which popped up on my streaming thing, uh, is also great. So Hamilton. Yeah, I mean, you know, try to get tickets. I still haven't gotten tickets. I see a lot of musical theater, and I still haven't gotten tickets. <laughs> anyway, I'm grumpy about that. But um, <laughs> uh, so uh, we're gonna move. Uh, we're gonna go from music to music. Uh, we're going to uh, go to John Dankowski now. Uh, the year started. With uh, speaking of musicals, I was lucky enough to see Lazarus, which was which was the David uh, Bowie <gasps> musical uh, that uh, that ran at New York Theater Workshop just as David Bowie was dying and 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 was playing as he died. Uh, and some of the music that you hear from this album uh, is also in that musical. But tell us about uh, Black Star. And you know what we'll do is, uh, Wolfie, let's just play a little bit of Black Star uh, underneath John as he's uh, talking about it. Sh- sure. And I will say that to me, it's the record of 2016. And not just because I think it's a really brilliant record, but um, it's the closing statement by one of the 
I'm the biggest artist of my lifetime. But it really sounds like 2016 to me. It's a really mm. dark record, and it's really unsettling. And it feels, uh, as I listen to this music, like the world is breaking apart, right? It just has uh, an unusual edge to it. Uh, what David Bowie did is he essentially recruited this guy, Donnie McCaslin, who's a jazz artist who was playing in small places in New York City with his band. Uh, a, a, a friend said, you should really check this guy out. Went to this uh, small bar, saw him play. When Donnie came off the stage, David Bowie said, that was really loud. And then, the, and then they forged this friendship, and he asked him to come in and make this record with him. So it's filled with, with uh, jazz and improvisation. It's filled with strange wordplay. It's filled with a, a, a lot of very dark imagery and some really beautiful lyrics, too. Uh, I just I can't say enough about how much it makes me feel. I'm not sure how it makes me feel. I don't love the record every single time I listen to it because it's so hard to listen to, but I just love David Bowie so much. It's a it's a pretty brilliant last statement, I think. All right, so Black Star uh, and John's favorite album of the year. I get to go next. Um, I'm going to talk about a movie. It's actually just, it's gone very quickly from obscurity to a lot of critics' ten, 10 best lists, often inching up to around two or three. It's called Hell or High Water. It is a modern Western. It very much takes place in uh, a world that energized the Donald Trump candidacy. This is about people who are kind of losing the economic game. Uh, we're going to hear a little clip. This is almost from the very end. It's uh, Jeff Bridges. Uh, and uh, and Chris Pine uh, talking towards the end of the movie. You boys know how rich they're going to be? They don't know anything yet. You take them to the funeral? Like I said, they don't know anything. You want a little advice? No, no, I don't. Go see him tomorrow. You got any idea how much I owe Debbie and child support? You got enough in your front pocket to fix that problem right now. You can't spare it, you know that. Maybe we should hit another branch. You know, you talk like we ain't gonna get away with this. I've never met nobody who got away with anything, ever. You. Why in the hell did you agree to do it? Because you asked, little brother. So I misspoke. That's actually Ben Foster and Chris Pine. Ben Foster's amazing in this movie. I'm sort of only kind of dimly aware of Ben Foster. Uh, I mean, he's like the bad guy in a lot of movies, but uh, he's just terrific in this. Jeff Bridges uh, is um, is wonderful. I mean, this is a movie that in many ways does resemble No Country for Old Men, but it has its own real thrust to it, and it's, uh, it is just terrific. All right, where are we going next? We're going to Pedro. Uh, Pedro, we're going to go from tragedy to comedy. Uh, one of your nominations was Veep. Yes, Tell us about Veep. Veep is um, it is uh, sort of a cinema verite kind of like a one camera uh, f- uh, HBO series with Julia Louise Dreyfus uh, as the vice president of the United States, and um, it is I think in season number four right now, and it is someone can remind me is it Armando. I'll 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 look it up after yeah. uh, during the clip. The, oh, yeah. uh, the the Ianucci, the 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 person yeah. who created the show. Um, he's British. Uh, he did a few uh, British kind of versions of this mm. kind of style. Um, but it is absolutely hilarious. It is Julia Louis Dreyfus 
at the top of her game. Um, it's mostly improvisational the way it works. It is uh, vulgar as all get out. <laughs> and um, it is also just the way – the reason I picked this is um, – the season which closed at the beginning of this year, um, sort of before the election started, if you rewatch it now after the election has happened, um, I think <laughs> it just is a totally different feel. And I think it it is the way we all on the losing side feel, um, I think, is the way uh, this season sort of ends out. And it's just well worth watching. Let's hear a little bit uh, from Veep. You're going to hear Julia, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. Uh, I don't know who else is in this clip. And you will hear a little bit of the uh, vulgarity, although we had to you know, really be careful about it. I don't think this word has ever appeared on WNPR before, but what can we do? My fellow Americans, last night you attempted to choose your president. Although there's an unprecedented tie in the Electoral College, I stand before you in awe of our democratic system. Clear? This election has just been brutal on me. My eyelids are starting to look like Keith Richards' ball sack. Oh, please, he wishes. All right. Uh, see, the world didn't end um, <laughs> yet. Um, all right, so we're going to go over to producer Jonathan McNichol. I, I invited him to share some of his, his favorite stuff of the year. Uh, this is uh, – I guess he's going to explain all this to us, right? Uh, this is Barcade. There is a, uh, a newish restaurant in New Haven, uh, opened in April of this year uh, on Orange Street. And, I mean, the food is good and the, the beer and cocktails list is excessively long and all that kind of stuff. But I'm not going to talk about that because um, I'm sort of constitutionally opposed to talking about food and drinks on the radio. But that's that's not the point of this place anyway. Um, the place I'm talking about is is Barcade New Haven. It's a bar that's also an arcade. Like a real arcade, for, like from the 90s or the 80s, like with stand-up video game cabinets, uh, dozens of them, uh, like 62 according to their website. Um, games like Arkanoid and Asteroids and Bubble Bobble and Burger Time, uh, Crazy Taxi, Dig Dug, Donkey Kong, Frogger, Miss Pac-Man, Qbert, Tecmo Bowl, Tetris, Tron, and then like 50 other ones. They have tokens like a real arcade, like Chuck E. Cheese's, and then I've got tokens in my house like I did when I was a kid. And I, I should say, too, that I have photographic proof that I've had the high score on the Asteroids machine there more than once. I think that says more about the popularity of that game than it does about my skill on it, though. My high score is like 12,000, I guess. Apparently, the high score on that machine is uh, some jerk with the initials JNB who got nearly 89,000 points. But anyway, uh, Barcade in New Haven. I think when you say Frogger, you have to say it like George Costanza. Right? Say Frogger, Frogger. I just have to say, there's something disconcerting about the idea of being at a bar and having it be just like the arcades I was in as a kid, but only having everyone be liquored up. Because, you know, you're waiting for that machine that you really want to get to, and there's some, some guy with a beer who's kind of mean, and he's lording over the asteroids machine. I, I could see this being trouble, <laughs> right. at least for me. <laughs> well, if you're looking for trouble, uh, we've just told you where to go. Uh, and there are little shelves next to the games for drinks, I'm told. All right, so we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with more of the best of 2016 after the proverbial this. Look up here, I'm in heaven I've got scars that can't be seen I've 
Why in Star Wars is every admiral a fish? Is there some kind of old boy tuna network? Can Wookiees not get promoted? Today's show is produced by Obi-Wan McPants and me, Kion Wolf. We did the intro together. Our intern is Chewy Fisher, and the part of Bill Curry was played by Billy D. Williams. Catch up on our other episodes at wnpr.org slash Colin. Fight your post-Christmas blues with our cheery episode about asteroid strikes. And now... Back to Colin. That is true. We're coming back on Monday. We did this. Uh, it's actually really more fun than it sounds like. Uh, an episode about asteroids striking the Earth and possibly extinguishing all life. Uh, but it's fun. Uh, anyway. Merry Christmas. <laughs> Merry Christmas. <laughs> well, they're going to have their Christmas blues by then. It'll be over, you know. So um, we're going to, we're got, we've got about 10 minutes or less to get through some of our other favorite stuff from 2016. We'll go back to Rebecca Castellani. Um, although I think all of us will want to talk about this. You want to salute the work of Kate McKinnon. Yes, really just that. I mean, I think she's had an outstanding year. She's been allowing me some some rage with laughter in the dark. I think her portrayal of Hillary from beginning into the end was brilliant. I think her her swan song, if you will, with her doing that cold open with just singing hallelujah was one of the only moments of catharsis I felt in the wake of the election. Uh, I think she's just had a standout year. I think she's the face of comedy now. I mean, we're moving away from she's you know she's she's a queer woman she's occupying roles that are a little quirkier and weirder than you know a lot of your traditional female comedians in the past i think what the world is ready for kate and i'm mm. ready for 2017 to be the 2016's Riz Ahmed's year. 2017's going to be Kate's year. I have loved her since Jump Street. I mean, yeah. I loved her as She's the so Russian good. woman. I loved her as Billie Jean King. Oh, uh, I loved Billie her Jean as King. Angela Merkel. Let's hear a little bit, though, of Kate McKinnon as Hillary Clinton. I think you're really going to like the Hillary Clinton that my team and I have created for this debate. <laughs> Wait a minute, do you all like this? <laughs> I'm not losing, am I? <laughs> I mean, in 2008, of course I lost. I was running against a cool black guy. But this year, I thought I got to be the cool black guy. <clears throat> Can I tell you a secret? Sure. I've never told anyone this, but you know the presidency? Yeah. I really, really want it. <laughs> Don't say. Yeah. And you know what else? I don't really like people. <laughs> I only talk to them because I want to be the president so bad. Please don't tell. Don't tell. And none of that destroyed me. Music in. So after this little blip, I shall rise again from the ashes like a phoenix, nay, like a Hillary Clinton. And I will ascend to the high office of president and claim my rightful place in history. You know, John, one of the things I think as I'm listening to that is she doesn't really sound anything like Hillary Clinton. But, Not at all. But it's in the same way that certain other Saturday Night Live impersonations have captured the essence of somebody. She captured something. Oh, oh yeah, exactly. And she captured the Hillary Clinton that we all kind of know is under there. Her face is brilliant. It just, <sighs> it's just amazing to look at. And hearing the clips is, is very funny. We're all just laughing. But watching her do that and watching her honestly do anything with her face is just such a joy. She's a brilliant brilliant actress and I just think that 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 really was the performance running all through 2016. And Pedro uh, of course the sadness of this was she thought she was going to be doing Hillary Clinton for another four years. right? That is very true although I do think that she did luck out and she will be doing Kellyanne Conway. 
Kellyanne Conway's pretty good. And yeah. I think that I could, I just watching her uh, and Alec Baldwin uh, as the the the, the duo there. Uh, I could watch that for four years and be slightly slightly mollified. Less but, depressed. Yeah, slightly less depressed. But her Kellyanne Conway, I think, is is really spot on, and I think is is perfect. So I'm glad, at the very least, that she'll have something to do. So, um, John Yankowski, we're all looking for a, things, a new podcast to listen to as we erase 538 and various other things from our podcast <laughs> <Yes>. cues. Um, <laughs> yeah. So you've got one for us. Well, and it's the number one podcast in America right now. I'm not going out on a big limb here, but Crime Town is a Gimlet podcast that explores, in its first season, the crime town that we all know from New England. It's Providence, Rhode Island. It tells the story, on one hand, of Raymond Patriarca, who was, of course, the big boss of New England crime, the guy at the top of the food chain above Whitey Bulger and everyone else, Uh, and also the story of Buddy Cianci, who's one of the great comic tragic figures of all time, much beloved in Providence, went to jail while mayor. There's so many stories to tell. And Somebody like me in radio listens to the credit list at the end of this and goes, oh, great. Well, that's fine. There's as many people working on Crime Town as there are on this new Star Wars movie. There's a, a <laughs> cast of thousands. But it sounds like it. it's beautiful. It's archival interviews. It's new interviews with old mobsters with great accents. It's really worth checking out. All right. Let's say since he says it sounds so great, let's hear a little bit of Crime Town. Patriarcha ruled over a kingdom of crime that extended across the country. He was a silent partner in Las Vegas casinos with Frank Sinatra. Whitey Bulger, maybe you've heard of him? Even he had a kick up to Raymond Patriarcha. And if you ran a card game or a prostitution ring or a numbers racket pretty much anywhere in New England, a portion of your profits went to the boss. I don't care what you did. You want to go break somebody's window, you've got to get permission from Raymond. Again, Albert Baraducci, who grew up not far from the Coinomatic in Providence's Italian neighborhood, Federal Hill. Raymond was no chump. He was no chump. That's his business. That's that was the key word. That's his business. That's his business. I own the streets. I own all the illicit activities. I'm the one who built it. I'm the one who started it. This is my money, not yours. This just happens to be organized crime, and people don't get fired. They get fired at. All right, Crime Town. By the way, uh, in terms of podcasts, I would also recommend Homecoming. I, th- I think that fiction podcasts are going to be big in 2017. Homecoming is. I really liked Homecoming. Yeah, Homecoming is yeah. Uh, and terrific cast: Catherine Keener, David Schwimmer, and of course um, Oscar Isaac. Uh, all right, uh, very quickly, I'm going to endorse. We've got a clip here, but I think I won't play it just because we we don't have a lot of time. Um, I sort of feel like people got excited about the wrong OJ thing in uh, mm. in 2016. Uh, OJ Made in America, the ESPN a seven and a half eight hour documentary, is amazing. It's amazing because. It's not really about O.J. as much as it is about America during that time period. Uh, it dwells a little bit less on the characters. And it also puts O.J. into some kind of context that I haven't seen before. There are almost these, these Gatsby-esque moments. There's one where he's lamenting the fact that nobody from Brentwood will hang around with him after he gets acquitted. And he says, you know, I moved here before most of these people. <laughs> he's kind of standing <laughs> on his front lawn in this state of high dudgeon. Uh, all right. So, uh, Pedro, uh, you, you're either going to do a book or a restaurant. You get to pick. Um, let's do a restaurant. Let's so uh the um so I um restaurant in Brantford, Connecticut has recently opened. Um sorry uh Mr. McNichol, I'm talking about food and restaurants on the radio. <laughs> uh but I think cuz he lives there, uh he he'll like to hear this. Uh the restaurant is called The Stand 
and it just opened um, out of actually an old converted gas station. And it is a uh, barbecue. They have a smoker in the back. It's a barbecue restaurant that has some live music, craft beer. Um, but it's just a really, really great place. It just opened in September, and uh, it's well worth visiting. It's just a fun, uh, a fun place. And you know, driving down near the water in Brantford, um, across I think from Lenny's uh, Indian Head, there uh, they're situated, and uh, it's well worth well worth the visit. Good, especially in summertime, uh, they have a, a farmers market, all sorts of stuff. But in the wintertime, looking for some good barbecue food, uh, make the trip. And, and the Stephen King theme is nice too. That runs through it, which is like, <laughs> exactly. I think this is sort of a brilliant, uh, brilliant little idea. <laughs> this like apocalyptic. Uh, <laughs> All right, so we don't have time to play another clip. We don't have time to play another McNichol recommendation. Uh, Rebecca, did you have a third one? Yeah, real quick. Okay. It's another restaurant one. I'm sorry, but this was the, my, really, Kate McKinnon was one dimension of catharsis, but really the great bomb to my suffering was River's Edge Mediterranean Cafe in Unionville. The food is just as really, in my opinion, as good as it gets. Uh, they've got great deals. I believe Monday through Thursday, they buy one entree, get one 40% off. It's BYOB. My biggest recommendation is go for Sunday brunch. It's a great deal. You can try all the stuff they have, and then when you go back, you'll know what you like. It, but it's to die for. It's really fantastic. I and can it, actually uh, second that emotion, except don't go for brunch. Brunch is disgusting. Don't ever go for brunch anywhere. <laughs> but, um, it doesn't start till 11, so there's really <laughs> no brunch. Uh, but the food there is really, really great. That is uh, a nice recommendation. All right, so we're, we're doing a speed Around here. So, uh, do you have another one? Uh, really quickly, my art experience of the year was the Wasaic Project. Every year, there's this art festival in the little hamlet of Wasaic in Amenia, New York, just over the border from Connecticut. Right now, they're taking exhibitions. If you're an artist, uh, you can get into this. It's a beautiful art exhibit that runs all summer long in a uh, gigantic converted grain mill. All right, and I'll just do one that bridges from today to yesterday. Underground Airlines by Ben Winters is an amazing novel. It's an alternative history. The Civil War came out differently, uh, and uh, there's there's well anyway. I don't want to say too much more about it. It's terrific. It bridges to our Monday show, which features Ben Winters, the author of this book, because he also did a series of books, a detective novel set in the interval before an asteroid strike of Earth. All right, so uh, we've got it all done here. Thanks very much to John Dankowski, to Pedro Soto, and to Rebecca Castellani. Thanks to all. All the great people I work with, too. I, the love letter I have to Kion Wolf and Jonathan McNichol and Betsy Kaplan and Josh Nalea would go on forever. But you guys are great, and you make it fun to come to work every day. Now, this is not a spoiler, but in Rogue One, apparently Darth Vader makes a pun. I got to say, I feel like it was a bit forced. <laughs>